Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Anglo-Saxon England, Series 1, Episode 23, or Episode 13, Under the Old Money. This is your regular reminder that the content of this episode is exactly the same as the corresponding episode in the History of England, and that I have restored this here merely for the sake of completeness and ease. You will notice a change in the quality of recording in a minute, since... The original was recorded over a decade ago, and the world span just a little bit slower. Last week, then, we left off with the death of Edred, the man who finally put this England thing to bed. We've had a string of short-lived but rather successful Anglo-Saxon kings. Alfred, Edward, Athelstan, Edmunds, Edred. 
Things don't change immediately, but things are going to get worse. I just thought I'd warn you about that. Edward was a sick man, and he died without any children. So the Witten went back to the sons of King Edmund. You may remember that Edmund's eldest son, Edwig, had been passed over because he was too young. In 955 he was still young, but at 15 just about passable, so they turned to him. Edwig was to be another short-lived monarch. Most 15-year-olds are pretty hormone-ridden, and Edwig was no exception. So in the four years he's king, there's a good deal of adolescent behaviour. His sobriquet is Edwy Allfair, because of his good looks, which was to lead him into trouble. And he started off with a bang, as it were, at his coronation at Kingston in 955. We have to be aware, of course, that later chroniclers have quite possibly turned the story into something much more salacious than actually happened, but we can talk about all that in just a minute. So the story goes that everyone, and that is all the thanes and the bishops and things, are all at Edwig's coronation feast, along with one of the leading figures of the church, Dunstan, then abbot of Glastonbury. Suddenly, Dunstan realises that Edwig has disappeared. This is a bad thing, because it will be seen as an insult to his lords and his guests. Dunstan hurried through the palace to find him, and eventually he did find him, but he found him in bed in a threesome with his future wife and his future mother-in-law. Edwig refused Dunstan's call to return to his duty, so nothing daunted, Dunstan dragged him out of bed and frog-marched him back to the hall. How much of this is true is a bit moot. The story of Edwig's reign is one of strife and civil war, and Dunstan is on the other side, so it's entirely possible that the whole thing was made up or exaggerated to explain why Edwig and Dunstan fell out. Also, all the chronicles we've come from are from churchmen, and all of them would have been on Dunstan's side, and also not given to supporting the idea of threesomes, or not officially anyway. The political situation for Edwig did have its complications. His younger brother Edgar was waiting in the wings, and Edgar was well connected. He's particularly strongly supported by one of the most powerful families of the period, that of Athelstan Halfking, who we heard about last week. So Edwig decided to marry a woman called Alf Gifu, and although we can't be absolutely sure about her background, it looks as though she was related to Athelstan Halfking, and descended from King Ethelred, Alfred's brother. As with any royal marriage, here is clearly an attempt to bolster his position on the throne and his influence and friendships. It's clear enough that with a rival brother in the wings and an increasing amount of power focused in the hands of a few aristocratic families, Edwig had potentially a sensitive situation to deal with. It's almost equally clear that he makes a bit of a hash of the whole thing. Things fall apart with quite remarkable rapidity. In 956, presumably in revenge for Dunstan's high-handed treatment of him at the coronation, Edwig banished Dunstan, and Dunstan duly spent the next three years in Flanders. The church-based chronicles suggest that Edwig took general revenge on the church, but there's really no evidence of this at all, and actually, Edwig is remarkably generous in granting land to religious institutions, whether due to his extreme piety, or probably the precariousness of his political situation. Edwig's real problem was probably simply youthful irresponsibility, and it's quite probable that he gathered his West Saxon mates around him and ignored the other parts of his kingdom. Because in 957, the Mercians and Northumbrians renounced their allegiance to him in favour of his brother Edgar. 
Edgar has a massive reputation as the apogee of Anglo-Saxon monarchy, so the traces have been well and truly kicked over, if there were any traces to kick over in the first place. But I'd just like to know quite how surprised Edgar was when he heard the news. That true enough, he would have been barely 14 at the time, so that's probably a little harsh. Anyway, Odder, the Archbishop of Canterbury, also then waded in, and he used Edwig's difficulties to force him to divorce his wife on the grounds of being distantly related. This does look awfully like revenge, since the closeness of the relationship is not unusually close. In the end, the two parties decided not to fight. Sir Edwig retained the south, Wessex and Kent, while Edgar took the rest. But by October 959, poor Edwig was dead at the tender age of 18. Edgar therefore became king at the age of 16, but in many ways he took a very different approach to his brother, and his reign became seen later as the golden age of Anglo-Saxon England. He was to be known as Edgar the Peaceable, not because he was a particularly calm, retiring sort of person, but because for the first reign, for many centuries, there is no war or chaos. As always, we don't know much about his character unless we take the comments of William of Malmesbury seriously. But it's got to be said that many of the pages in William's book sound more like Heat magazine than a historical record, and they're not to be repeated in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle or in the Chronicles of Florence of Worcester. There are a few main themes we should cover with Edgar. There's the continuing story of the politics of England and her Celtic neighbours. There's the development of the monarchy and its strength, and then there's the development of monasticism, for which he is most famous. So let's start with the church thing. Basically, monasticism in England was in a mess. The problem was not that the wealth and status of the church had not recovered from the wars, there's loads of evidence of numerous land grants from kings and thanes in the 10th century, it was about structure and form. The chaos of the preceding century meant that the true Benedictine monasticism was pretty much dead in England. Groups of minster priests lived in separate houses with their wives and children, and therefore resembled regular churchmen rather than monks. Edgar and Dunstan provided the political will and leadership necessary to start changing all that. The reforming zeal came from a number of eminent English churchmen. Dunstan was very important in this at the early stages, as he started reform at the Monastery of Glastonbury from the 940s, but once Edgar came to the throne, his influence is one more of political support. Edgar recalled Dunstan from Edwig's exile as soon as he became king, and he made Dunstan Archbishop of Canterbury from 961. Dunstan is a constant and close adviser to Edgar, and no doubt used all his influence to get support and money for the reform programme. But in Edgar's reign, the actual work is more down to the likes of Oswald, the Bishop of Worcester, and Athelwold, the Bishop of Winchester. The work involved the expulsion of secular priests from monastic institutions, the reconstitution of those houses under a new rule and with new monks, and the introduction of new houses. Some, if not all, of the concepts came from the continent. There doesn't seem to be a direct relationship between England and the great Burgundian leader of monastic reform, Odo of Cluny, but we can be fairly sure that the ideas flowed through other houses. So, for example, we know of a close relationship with the monastery of Fleury. So England was very much part of a European movement in this regard, but it also had a very English flavour. 
So by the year 1000, most English bishops were monks rather than part of the regular clergy. There was very little separation indeed between church and state. Bishops and abbots were very closely stitched into the secular political process, taking a full part in institutions like the Witten alongside Danes and magnates. Great churchmen like Dunstan were very much the most trusted of the king's advisers. By the end of Edgar's reign, over 50 institutions had been reformed or newly founded, and the whole process was actively and energetically promoted and encouraged by Edgar. It's also worth noting that there were still many unreformed houses, but a start had been made. It's interesting to see that immediately after Edgar's reign, there is something of a reaction to the whole thing, probably on the basis of the expense of all the grants the aristocracy were being asked to make to the church, as well as just a general dislike of change. But all of that reaction did turn out to be pretty temporary. Oddly enough, Edgar did not have a coronation service until 14 years into his reign, that is in 973. It's not clear exactly why, but people have noted that a priest could not be ordained until they reached the age of 30. Edgar, in common with most of the Anglo-Saxon kings, was very obviously pious, and this therefore may be the reason why Edgar held off until he'd reached that age. When it did come, the service was something special, though. They chose Bath as the ideal location for the coronation, because Bath had the most magnificent remains from the imperial Roman past. It allowed Edgar to borrow the authority of the Roman Empire. We know that a lot of work was also done on the form and content of the service, and it was copied subsequently all over Europe, in places like Normandy, Milan, Poland and Hungary. And parts of it were even copied in France, where of course Charlemagne has started all this sort of thing off. But the real stunner is that the service has stayed pretty much unaltered here in England since Edgar's time. Edgar swore to keep the Church of God in true peace, to forbid rapacity and iniquity to all classes of his people, and to do justice equitably and mercifully. This oath was administered by Dunstan as the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Edgar was then anointed by Dunstan, while a choir sang the same anthem to Adolf the Priest, which was sung at Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953, though without the benefit of Handel's music. It was this bit, the anointing of Edgar by God, that was the main focus of the whole event, the setting apart of the king from the rest of humanity, with the authority of God. Then Edgar was invested with the symbols of kingship, the ring, the sword, crown, scepter and rod, and they all went off to a grand feast, where apparently absolutely nobody got drunk. With this ceremony, we've come a long way from the warrior kings of Old Wessex, where anyone who could win some land could call himself a king, where the king was simply the first amongst equals. The world had changed since then. Now Edgar is at the head of a combined England, and indeed he's owed the allegiance of the kings of all Britain. Edgar and Dunstan are quite deliberately designing a new form of kingship designed for a new reality. The coronation was followed by an even more remarkable ceremony. After his coronation in Bath, Edgar set sail with his fleet and sailed right round the north of Scotland and arrived at Chester. Waiting for him there were six kings of the British Isles, including Kenneth of the Scots, the King of Gwyneth, 
Marcus, King of the Isles, Dunmail, King of Strathclyde, and Hewell. The six kings swore to serve Edgar by sea and by land. Edgar then installed himself on board a ship, took the helm, and got the six kings to row him down the River Dee to a monastery where he could pray, and then got them to row him back again afterwards. As a naked and public display of power, this is pretty much unsurpassed. I'm not a Dark Age king, so it could be that Kenneth, Dunmail and the rest thought this was all absolutely fine, but personally, I would have borne a grudge. Edgar represents the apogee of English influence and power over the kingdoms of the island of Britain during the Anglo-Saxon period. From here on in, it's going to be all downhill. Edgar's attitude to the differences within his own kingdom was a lot more sensitive. He faced a politically significant problem, given that a large part of his kingdom now contained a large Danish population, with all the possibilities of alienation and revolt that that offered. Edgar held all the main levers of power in the Dane law in the same way as he did in Anglo-Saxon lands. He appointed the earls and the bishops, he held the fealty of the leading magnates, and he possessed the right to call out the militia. But Edgar was scrupulous in staying out of the Danish face. He made it absolutely clear that they were to be governed according to their own laws and customs, that the laws he enacted would not apply in the Dane law. This level of autonomy did much to keep the peace and help Edgar retain the loyalty of his Danish subjects. In a way, it's a bit hard to get excited about Edgar the Peaceable. The problem is that after a couple of hundred years of unremitting war and conflict, it all suddenly comes to an end, and yet we're not yet in the period where the sources are able to tell us about interesting politics, or periods when fast social and economic change create their own story. It's precisely because Edgar is so successful that he's perhaps a little bit dull. But it's equally clear that I'd rather have lived in Wessex during the time of Edgar than I would during the time of Alfred, that Edgar was one of the Anglo-Saxon England's most successful monarchs. It may well be the case, for example, that England is not invaded at this time because of Edgar's military preparations. One chronicler records that Edgar regularly exercised his navy and that his navy was 360 ships strong, which is a pretty massive navy for the time. It is certainly the case that Edgar's England is strongly centralised and efficient. So, for example, Edgar maintained the kind of high-value coinage that was essential to economic health. So much so, that it was his practice to call in the coinage at regular intervals and reissue them, and to cut just one set of dyes at Winchester, and then distribute those dyes to the other mints throughout the country. All of this made sure that there was a carefully controlled, high-quality and standardised coinage. It also demanded stunning administrative efficiency for the time, unrivaled anywhere else in Europe. Edgar does genuinely seem to have been a pretty complete package. He'd shown the ability to seize opportunities and exercise power, as shown by the way he dealt with his brother and the other British kings, but he knew also how to govern his kingdom in peace, let well enough alone, and let prosperity grow and his kingdom now felt very much like one unified kingdom, rather than a loose association of several. The judgment of William and Malmesbury, writing in the 12th century, was that no king, either of his own or former times in England, could be justly and fairly compared with Edgar. Nothing could be more holy than his life, nothing more praiseworthy than his justice. Edgar died suddenly and unexpectedly in July 975, at the tender age of 32, 
and he was buried at Glastonbury. He died leaving two young sons and a kingdom that was surely safer than any other in Europe, well governed, at peace, with an effective military organisation. Life should have been a doddle for his successor, but sadly it was anything but. I guess if there were things to criticise Edgar for, it's for dying too young, which again is a little bit harsh, and for not getting his house in order in terms of the succession. It's not terribly clear how many wives or concubines Edgar had, but his eldest son was Edward, and there is a possibility that Edward was not legitimate. Edward was 13 at the time of Edgar's death. Edgar's other son was Ethelred, and he had a living mother, an Elfrith. She was a scheming and ambitious person, and very keen to make sure that her son, and not her stepson, would have the power that she craved. Ethelred was unready to take the throne, being less than ten years old at the time. Nonetheless, the succession was very much disputed, though we're not entirely clear why. It could have been that Edward was illegitimate, and that therefore many were genuinely unclear about the strength of his claim to the throne. But it's also quite possible that the new young claimants to the throne became the focus of a power struggle between two different factions struggling for supremacy. So in one corner we have Edward's party. This was led by churchmen and secular lords who strongly supported the monastic reforms of Edgar's reigns, and they wanted to see it to continue to grow. So this include figures like the Archbishops Dunstan and Oswald, and the son of Athelstan Halfking, Athelwine. In the other corner, we have an almost equally powerful faction. This one was led by Elfrith. It did also include well-known churchmen like Bishop Athelwold. But it also included powerful magnates who had another aim, that of stopping and even rolling back the tide of monastic reform. The prime example here is a magnate called Elfhir, who had risen to eminence in Edgar's reign. His power base was in Mercia and possibly Hampshire, and his family's influence seems to have rivalled that of Athelstan Halfking. It's not that these men weren't religious, but the point at issue about the monastic reform was the vast movement of land out of secular hands and into those of the religious institutions. Men like Alfir felt they'd been put under too much pressure to bestow land on the church, and they felt that the balance of power between the church and secular lords had gone too far in favour of the church. The dispute led to armed camps, with Alfair expelling monks from monasteries in his lands, while Athelwine assembled an army to stop the same happening in East Anglia. In the end, the Witten just about managed to keep the peace, and Dunstan's personal influence and reputation was probably decisive. Edward, soon to be known as Edward the Martyr, was therefore crowned at Kingston-on-Thames. It was not to be a happy reign. The accounts we have of Edward's character are rather conflicting. The oldest records show a rather unpleasant young man given to shouting and throwing his weight around, whereas later accounts, which are likely to have been affected by his martyrdom, show a king who's ready and willing to take advice and guidance and to do his best, and maintaining a friendly relationship with Ethelred and his mother. Edward only lasted three years, and these were three years of unrest. The arguments about monastic reform continued, dominating discussions at a bad-tempered synod at Colne, and this was not helped by a bad harvest which, for many farmers living at the edge of subsistence, meant famine. Then in 978 Edward went hunting in the south of England, in Dorset near Corfe Castle. 
His stepmother lived nearby at the castle, so Edward decided he'd drop by and take advantage of her hospitality. The story of what exactly happens next varies, with some saying that his attendants were on the plot, and others that he was separated from them, but the long and short is that his stepmother offered him a drink, and while he was thus distracted, Edward was stabbed to death. Elfrith then dropped his body in a grave at Wareham without any service or honour due to a king. Ethelred was crowned within a month at Kingston, and Elfrith installed as the regent, all in unusual haste, which all led to the air of suspicion, intrigue and distrust. It has to be said that most of the gory details appear in chronicles that are written over a century after the event, and therefore may well have been embroidered in the light of Ethelred's later reputation. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle itself, the most contemporary source, gives no great detail, just recording that Edward was killed at Corfe, and that it was an evil deed. But the finger of motive does point pretty clearly at Elthfrith. And of course, no one was punished for the killing, which again suggests that whoever it was had a hold over the new king, Ethelred. Added to that, there's a deal of quite revealing behaviour after the event. Alderman Alfhere a year later dug Edward up and reburied him with greater honour at a nunnery at Shaftesbury, which looks a bit like a man trying to distance himself from the deed. By 1001, Edward was considered a martyr, and the interpretation is often that this came about from public revulsion at the murder and apparent lack of punishment for the perpetrators. Whatever the truth of it, all of this severely damaged the prestige of the crown, and got Ethelred's reign off to a very bad start, from which it really never recovered. Ethelred himself, throughout his life, appears like a man who never felt secure or sure of himself, and you have to wonder if that was partly the result of the rumours and doubt surrounding the circumstances of Edward's death, and the loyalty between the Anglo-Saxon people and the king, which had been such a feature of the last hundred years, was very clearly damaged, the consequences of which we'll see innumerable examples next week. Next week, we'll cover the first 25 years of Ethelred's reign, as the Scandinavian tide begins to wash up on the English shore, and the English state had the chance to show if Edgar's glory was based on stone or on sand. Until then, everyone, good luck and have a great week.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.